Welcome to Street Talk with Wine Spectator, a new podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Street Talk, we bring the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. What is the goal? The goal is to be in the best part of the future. Without, and I insist on that, without being afraid. And if we have to change completely the winemaking, let's change it. They will not ask, okay, who made it, how did he make it, etc. No, the, the, the soil, the subsoil, the place made, made it. I'm attached to the, to the place and uh, to the, the taste of the place. The champagne demand has not yet abetted. Great champagne seems to be a little bit immune right now to any of the major external factors. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting our December 15th, 2022 issue. And that means it's time for bubbles, baby. The holidays are in full swing. The sparkling wine is flowing and our champagne cover story is just in time. On top of our champagne tasting report, which features scores for more than 200 new champagnes, we've also got a very cool travel guide to the best champagne bars and restaurants across the U.S., as well as places to eat, drink, and stay in Paris and in the Champagne region. And now joining me in the studio, as always, is our podcast director, Rob Taylor. Greetings, James, and congrats on that great Mandavi episode a couple weeks back. For anyone new to the podcast, definitely go back and check out episode two on the Robert Mandavi saga. Thanks, Rob. You were a big help on that episode. We had a lot of fun putting that together. I've been getting a lot of positive feedback from our listeners on that one. It would seem the tale of Robert Mandavi just never gets old. Now, before we get into this episode, I wanted to point out that our December 15 issue isn't all about champagne. There's also a great feature on Sonoma's Hansel Vineyards. Yeah, I had fun writing this story after a visit to Hansel. If you're into fresh, minerally structured Pinot Noirs, Chardonnays, and even a Cabernet Sauvignon, Hansel is an old-school Sonoma Valley pioneer that is back on the leading edge under the stewardship of Jason Jardine, who joined them back in 2014. Earlier this year, you sent me a video from Hansel, and I'm, I'm seeing chickens and pigs and sheep running around, and I'm thinking, what is going on here? Yeah, Jason is an interesting guy. He kind of looks like he stepped out of a Patagonia catalog. I talked to him a lot uh, on a visit last year about his regenerative farming techniques. Now, this is different from organic or biodynamic. It's a totally different uh, process. And it's not just throwing a few sheep out there to do some lawn mowing and, and window dressing. It's a whole coterie of animals that work uh, doing different things. And so managing that is a kind of a, uh, a chaos uh, method. And it's super interesting. And if you want to watch a video of this and Jason explaining it, go to winespectator.com slash video and check out the Hansel video with Jason Jardine. But today we're here to talk about champagne. And we have some very exciting guests lined up for this episode. Yeah, I think this is going to be another really good episode. We're going to be hearing from Jean-Baptiste de Caillon. He's the main man at the Louis Roderaire Champagne House. That's one of the big houses and the makers of Cristal. We also have one of the leaders in the boutique grower champagne category. Alexander Charton is the vigneron of Charton Taille, one of the most sought-after boutique producers. We're also going to be talking champagne supply chain news with Alex Micas of Vintus. That's the U.S. importer for Champagne Bollinger. And joining us now to help us sort through this is Wine Spectator's lead taster for the Wines of Champagne, Senior Editor Allison Napius. Hi, James. Hi, Rob. I heard we're talking about one of my favorite subjects today. You know it. But first, let's properly introduce you to our listeners, since this is your first time on Straight Talk. 
Like myself, you joined Wine Spectator's tasting department more than 20 years ago. You've been covering champagne for quite a while, along with Alsace and Italy. And more recently, you took on South Africa, as well as another new beat. It's a pretty big one, and it is... That's right. I'm reviewing the wines of Spain. I'm very excited to visit Spain early next year. Seeing the vineyards and meeting the winemakers in their own cellars really gives an amazing layer of additional context to the wines. And you're also our tasting director, which is a mighty big job. Tell us about that. Well, we conduct all our tasting from our two offices, one in New York and one in Napa. We have a team of tasting coordinators that catalog the incoming samples and then set up the blind tastings for our tasters. And these tastings encompass thousands of wines every year. For our listeners, Allison, why don't you explain what we mean when we say we taste blind? Enjoying wine is a very personal experience, but to evaluate it, you need to be objective and unbiased. We believe the best way to do that is to present all the wines on a level playing field. Our tasters don't know the winery, the wine, or the price. And by putting any preconceptions aside, they can really focus on what's in the glass. But in a more literal sense, when we say we taste blind, we mean we don't know the identity of the wine we're tasting it. That's the producer. We also don't know the price. All of the bottles are disguised in numbered paper bags, and the taster only knows the origin of the wine and its vintage. For whatever reasons, some people find it hard to believe that y'all are scoring these wines blind, but I am here to testify. I've been watching it happen pretty much every day for nearly 20 years. I'm also sure someone out there listening is saying to themselves, yeah, but a lot of those champagne bottles have some distinctive shapes, which are giveaways, no matter how they're bagged up. Good point, and we're on it. For wines with distinct bottles, like champagne, our tasting coordinators do the pouring for the tasters. So in my case, I only see glasses of champagne lined up for me to taste. And in fact, this was one of my favorite jobs when I was a tasting coordinator, pouring out wines for Bruce Sanderson, who covered champagne at the time. At the end of most tastings, after the wines had been revealed, Bruce would take the time to taste through them with me. And not only did I get to taste some amazing wines, but I also learned a lot about champagne from Bruce. That's one of the benefits for being here for over 20 years or so. Most of our, well, all of our tasters come up through the tasting department. They all apprentice for years with the senior tasters. And Bruce is our senior, senior editor at this point. <laughs> um, and I learned a lot from him in my early days, too. And Bruce is going to be joining us on our big episode four when we talk about the top 100 wines of the year. So stay tuned for that. We're going to have fun with Bruce, the bruiser, as we call him. What kind of glass are you tasting those champagnes out of, Allison? For me, it's got to be a white wine glass or preferably one of the larger burgundy bowls. Not only can you appreciate the aromatics of the champagne better than in the tall, narrow flutes, but the delivery of the wine and its mousse is actually more evenly distributed to your palate. Flutes send all of those bubbles and all the flavor to just one point on your palate, and it's kind of this aggressive stream. Flutes are a great invention and great for caterers because a lot of them fit on a service tray, but they just don't work for a serious wine lover. Uh, I agree, Allison. I actually love that point about how flutes were just an invention for caterers who needed a, a lot of glasses on their tray. I bet some people can win some bar bets with that bit of trivia. It's burgundy stems for me all the way as well. Sometimes I'll use like an AP glass, uh, a Zalto AP for a, a minerally champagne, but most of them I think do great in a in a burgundy bowl. Agreed. These are These are serious wines that deserve serious attention. Meanwhile, in the broader wine world, champagne is kind of a different beast, not just for the for the bubbles. For one, most of our tasting reports focus on recent vintages, like my Bordeaux report is on 2020 that's coming up, my California Cabernet report is on 2019, but your Champagne report is focused on 2014. So explain to our listeners why Champagne is so behind the times, so to speak. 
Well, I wouldn't say behind. I would say um, good things come to those who wait. And in the case of vintage champagne, the business model was created to provide consumers with a perfectly aged bottle of wine, and that takes time in champagne. The bulk of this year's new releases are from the 2015 and 2014 vintages, but I tasted new release vintage champagnes this year from as far back as 2004. Although vintage champagne is legally required to age for only three years, most producers go beyond that, often well beyond that, and there's a lot that goes on in the bottle during that additional aging. The wine gets to hang out with the dead yeast cells and other particulates that result from the secondary fermentation, and while that might not sound very delicious, those compounds are actually what give the wine richness and layers of flavor. And don't worry, the particulates are removed before you buy the bottle. (laughs) Well, we like that information. I didn't realize that dead yeast cells were a cool thing to hang out with, so I might have to sprinkle some of those around at my next... uh, Your uh, next dinner party? Yeah, my next dinner party. Run into a few at the club. Um, our first guest today, though, we've got a perfect spokesperson for the Champagne region in Jean-Baptiste Le Caillon. Tell us a little more about him. Well, first of all, Jean-Baptiste is a passionate vine grower. He's a winemaker, too, of course, but it all starts in the vineyards for him, and that's abundantly clear every time that I talk to him. He's been at Louis Roederer for a quarter century, so he draws on a lot of experience, and he's been a leader in converting to organic practices and adapting to, also capitalizing on, climate change. What I couldn't tell him when we spoke earlier this month was that his Cristal 2014 is Wine Spectator's number 10 wine of 2022, but he still had plenty to say about the wine and the vintage. Welcome to Straight Talk. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Edison. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy and honored to be in your podcast today. Cristal 2014 is the highest rated champagne of my annual report this year. Why is this vintage notable for you? 2014 was quite a difficult, challenging vintage in Champagne, very extreme kind of weather. But um, I think we are getting things together. I think now we have this... um, farming that is haute couture farming with uh, organic farming which was an old uh, crystal estate now since 2012 is organically and biodynamically farmed so crystal is it's really showing uh, the full power of this, this new viticulture we have talked about in the past that sometimes crystal is a little bit shy on release but this 2014 is like a friend it's very mm. personable mm. right away on release but with this beautiful structure. Is that really a consequence of the vintage or is that something you feel you you might be able to do in future years as well? Yes, I think it's exactly what we try to move. We we knew that Crystal was so classic, I would say, on release. And people were saying, uh, I was a bit frustrated sometimes when we launched 2002, which was a great vintage. And everybody was saying, ah, this is tight. This is very not ready yet. And uh, But I was very confident. So the challenge of Crystal is that we make wine for a long aging. So we need to get high acid. We need to get the structure to age very well. And so the, the challenge that I saw back uh, 15, 20 years ago was to work on the deliciousness. Uh, okay, you can be classic, you can age for a long time, but you need to be delicious from day one. Uh, Crystal should be classic for the long term, but effortlessly delicious as well. Yeah, I mean, I always felt that there was this precision to the wine and this and beautiful structure. But yes, the deliciousness was maybe a year later yeah. or two years later. Um, and since I'm not opening Crystal every day, you know. Uh, oh, you should. I, I would you love should, to, Alison. but another time. <laughs> 
So, Allison, Champagne is also unique among fine wine categories in that most of the wines that consumers see on retail shelves are not vintage dated. And those non-vintage bottlings can look pretty much identical year after year. Sometimes it can be hard to know if you're buying this year's release or a bottle that's been sitting on the shelf for a year or longer. That's true, and that's something else I talked to Jean-Baptiste about, because Rotorer recently introduced a new non-vintage bottling program that eliminates that uncertainty. It's called the Brut Collection Series, and each year's release is numbered. Last year, Rotorer released its Brut Collection 242, and in 2022, they've released the Brut Collection 243. The number represents the number of these non-vintage or multi-vintage blends released since Rotorer was founded in 1776. That sounds like an interesting approach to handling the multi-vintage bottlings in Champagne. So let's hear what Rotorer's Jean-Baptiste Lacayon had to say. I think we wanted to switch from non-vintage to multi-vintage. If you summarize, the non-vintage ID came out of the 60s, uh, 70s harvest when we Champagne struggled to ripen. In the past, what was the distinction between a vintage and a non-vintage was the ripeness. Unripier, non-vintage. Ripier, vintage. And now every year is ripe. So we had to switch from the non-vintage philosophy to the multi-vintage philosophy. When I say multi-vintage, it's really using the same vertical blending of different vintages to add an extra complexity, which aim to be as good as a vintage. There is no reason why a multi-vintage should not be as good as a vintage. I like that new collection program a lot. Everybody wins when consumers are more knowledgeable about what they're buying in a bottle of wine. But speaking of consumer awareness, we've been throwing around a lot of champagne speak today, most notably that word brute. I think it might be time to call the doctor. I'm pretty sure she's on call. Studio. Hey there, Rob. It sounds like you paged me again. I did. Thank you for coming on such short notice, Dr. Vinny. We've been talking about champagne today, and James and Allison keep talking about brutes, and I don't think they're talking about brute strength. Brute strength. That, that would make a great name for a champagne, though. Oh, yes. But before I get into sparkling wine designations... Rob, you know you don't have to pretend you're having an emergency every time you want to talk about wine, right? (laughs) Hey, who's pretending? We really need to know about Brut. Okay, fine. So Brut is one of the many sweetness designations used for champagne and other sparkling wines. Champagne and sparkling wine production is actually pretty complicated. I don't want to get into the whole thing, but I do want to mention that, especially at the end, winemakers can add a small amount of sweetened wine to help balance out the wine's acidity. So the amount of sugar in that little dose, or what's known as a dosage, determines the finished wine sweetness levels. So when you see the term brute on a sparkling wine label, that means the wine's actually dry. Hey, wait, isn't wine wet? Is what I would say if I didn't know that when we're talking about wine and we say it's dry, that means that it's not sweet. And if it's a little bit sweet, we call it off dry. And of course, sweet wines have a lot of residual sugar. Very good. So Brut is the driest and most popular category of sparkling wine. In fact, dry sparkling wine is so popular and trendy that there are some new categories within Brut that have been created. 
You may see terms like extra brute or brute natural or zero dosage, each of which indicate that you're basically talking about the driest of the dry. The next category is confusingly extra dry. Oh, come on. That's just mean. So extra dry is not as dry as brute. Who are the ad wizards who came up with this one? Am I right? I know, it doesn't make sense, but it goes from brute to extra dry, meaning slightly sweeter. Um, Sometimes you might see extra dry written as extra sec, S-E-C. Sec is the French word for dry. And then next up the sweetness ladder is sec, then demi-sec, also known as half dry, followed finally by the sweetest sparkling wine category. It's spelled D-O-U-X. It's pronounced du, the French word for sweet. Now... Keeping us on the topic of champagne, we have a guest coming up later in the episode, Alexandre Charton, who is a star of the Grower Champagne Movement. Tell us what that means. The Grower Champagne Movement is relatively new. For hundreds of years in the Champagne region of France, vineyard owners sold their grapes to large champagne houses, which then made and sold the wines. It was pretty rare for any of those small vineyard owners to make wine from their own grapes, even though it's pretty common in other parts of the world. But that's changed. Yes. Over the past few decades, more and more of those vineyard owners have started making and selling their own wines, and their wines have come to be known as grower champagnes. What sets them apart from the big houses more than anything is that they're just making smaller volumes of wine. For example, a big house like Moet and Chandon or Veuve Clicquot can make more than a million cases of champagne a year. A grower's champagne is more likely to make just a few thousand cases a year. And that's part of the appeal of grower's champagnes. They're boutique wines, and they're much harder to find than the big names. If you're curious to try one of those grower's champagnes, look for the French term recoltante manipulante on the label. Merci beaucoup, Dr. Veni. Merci beaucoup. Back to you, Rob. And for our curious listeners out there, if you've got a question about wine, the doctor is always in. You can check out my Dr. Vinny archives at winespectator.com, or you can email me your questions right here at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Cheers. I always feel smarter after my regularly scheduled checkup with Dr. V. Now, Allison, where were we with John baptiste Well, one of the hottest topics in the Champagne region is climate change no pun intended, and I talked to him about how he's managing and even exploiting these warmer growing seasons. On top of that, he also shared a very interesting theory on how the grower champagne trend started. We have been experiencing climate change for 30 years now. We, we have seen the weather, the average temperature increasing. But what we really face is a, is a, very, a lot of extremes. So you need to adapt, to readapt always your farming, and I think this is what, why the tailor-made Organic farming, which happened to be organic, but for me this is tailor-made, is a good tool because it's a buffer of climate change. So what we are finding is that we are harvesting earlier, riper, it's more vintage quality. What the, the good news is that it's more vintage quality year after year. This is much easier to work with a ripe grape than an unripe grape. So... Uh, yeah, it's bene- champagne is really benefiting from that. And this is why we see this movement, this grower movement. I think the grower movement you see in champagne at the moment is a result of climate change because the grower which, which couldn't make wine because it was so complex to make wine from unripe grapes and very, very unstable from one year to another. This is more regular. So now they can make single vineyard from village 
And this is all, I, I associate all the, the renaissance of the grower movement to thanks to climate change. Because uh, now we are ripe and we can do it. And it's easier to make wine today in Champagne than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Having said that, up to now, it's a benefit. But we, don't, we need to play our share, decrease our footprint, be, if not zero carbon, neutral carbon as much as we can. Champagne is making more terroir wines, greener wines, more uh, organic wines. What is the goal? The goal is to be in the best part of the future. Future climate, future conditions. Let's be in the best part of these new conditions and learn how to change the winemaking and all that needs to be changed without, and I insist on that, without being afraid. I think that's number one key. We should not be afraid. If we are afraid, we want, we will do mistakes. We must be very confident. Adaptation to climate has been a farmer's job for centuries, but also it's an opportunity. It's uh, let's make and if we have to change completely the winemaking, let's change it. Allison, you spoke with one of the leaders of the grower champagne movement in Alexandre Charton. Why don't you give us a little background on him? Alexandra is the winemaker and owner of Charton Taillet, a small producer in the village of Murphy, just north of Reims. He has been running his family estate since 2007. Before taking over at Charton Taillet, he trained under Anselm Solos, the owner and winemaker at another famed grower champagne label, Jacques Solos. Like the Solos wines, Charton Taillet has become one of the most sought-after champagnes in the U.S., which in turn means they're not easy to find. I asked Alexandra what it's like being a small grower in the vast ocean of champagne. I think it's interesting, but we are never comparing. You know, it's something. I don't think I'm a small grower because I'm 192 meters, so it's, <laughs> I'm tall. I'm a tall guy, but um, no, it's it's just a size which um, which is different. When we when we speak about uh, a grower, you will mainly um, be attached to one village, sometimes two, three villages. Um, and we are luckily uh, able to show the people the, a very specific place, a very specific taste of the place. We don't have to compare or to compete. I think the, the people who want to discover a very specific terroir from very small places, they have the grower for this. And uh, I will always learn that when I fail, um, I learn and I failed a lot, so I learned a lot. Um, but it's important always to experiment, to try for the next generations. We can make one of the best uh, wines uh, in the Champagne area or also in the world. So whether grower or Nicolchon, it's all just about making good champagne. It's always interesting when you have a wine which is attached to, not to a man or a lady who is vinifying, it's always attached to a place. And I thought maybe for my son or the, the next generation, when they will have those buttons in the cellar, they will not ask, okay, who made it? How did he make it, etc.? No, the, the, the soil, the subsoil, the place made it. So if they like it, they will reproduce it because the soil will always continue to, to work for us. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm attached to the, to the place and uh, to the, the taste of the place. We've heard from two of Champagne's brightest stars so far, one of them very large and one of them very small. But let's shift gears now and talk about the business side for a bit. 
Around this time last year, we were hearing a lot about a champagne shortage. Why was that, and are we still in danger of running dry? Oh, finally, James is ready to face his biggest fear. (laughs) There's no need to panic, James. But yes, champagne was definitely in short supply last year as production dipped and demand swelled. It was kind of a perfect storm brought on by a combination of pandemic belt tightening and supply chain nightmares, coupled with an unexpected upswing in sales in the U.S. For example, shipments of champagne to the U.S. in 2021 had increased 33 percent versus 2019 pre-pandemic. And yes, the demand for champagne is likely going to continue to outpace inventory availability for another year or two. If you've had your eye on a specific bottle of champagne this year, you probably want to secure it sooner rather than later. But if you're flexible, if you want to explore, you shouldn't have too much trouble picking up some great bubbly this holiday season. Alex Mikas is the president and COO at Vintus, the U.S. importer for Bollinger Champagne, and he gave me some inside perspective on champagne's current growing pains. Thank you for being here, Alex. Thanks, Allison. Thanks for having me. Let's start by taking a quick look back. We had the pandemic, sales dropped everywhere, but then in 2021, there's this unexpected surge for champagne and sales skyrocketed, exports to the U.S. skyrocketed. A lot of talk last year going into the holiday season about shortages. And I can say from personal experience shopping on New Year's Eve that there was a pretty limited selection at the places I went to. Have you seen that growth continue in 2022? It has. uh, Everything came roaring back at the end of 2020, and then it just continued in 2021. Uh, We've had to plan very precisely our shipments to distributors, our work with accounts so that they have enough stock to last through the end of the year. We've seen other categories start to normalize, um, and the, the champagne demand is, uh, it, it has not yet abetted. Um, you know, great champagne seems to be a little bit immune right now to any of the major external factors. Supply chain issues are not as bad as they were, I would say, earlier this year, but they are still intense. We don't have, perhaps you remember looking at newspapers or, you know, online and seeing photos of all the freighters uh, standing outside ports on the west coast of the U.S. and, you know, a month, six weeks, even worse in some cases to to even bring the boats in. And then, of course, there weren't enough people working at the ports, uh, labor shortage issues to inbound. So we seem to be past some of the worst of it, but it's still far more challenging to transport goods than it was, uh, you know, pre-COVID. On the other side of that, I mean, obviously, champagne has a minimum aging requirement, but most houses, most quality producers are aging beyond that. And that's certainly the case with Bollinger. Do you think that we're at a point where there's a pressure on maybe some houses to reduce their minimum aging and get those bottles that are waiting in their caves to the consumer? Champagne predicts that there will be 340 million bottles sold this year. Three years ago, the production was 250 million bottles. That's an enormous gap. So we can expect, of course, prices to continue to creep up. Maybe some producers will release early. I'm not so sure. I think the, you know, champagne at the the level, $50 and up, I, I don't think that those producers who really stake their reputation on quality are going to make those sacrifices. Brand reputation takes, uh, uh, doesn't, doesn't happen overnight. It takes decades. It can take longer. You know, it's a short-term issue, hopefully. Thanks for all your great reporting on champagne, Allison. 
As a reminder to our listeners, your champagne tasting and travel report in the December 15 issue features more than 200 new champagne scores. But before we let you go, I wanted to ask you both for some go-to non-vintage Grandmark picks for our last-minute shoppers. And also maybe a non-champagne sparkling wine category that you're excited about this year. Allison? In addition to those from Bollinger and Rodora, I'm a big fan of this year's non-vintage releases from Ruinart. I love their rosé. And from Jose Dant and Gasset, among many others. And for sparkling wine values, I have to suggest two of the other categories I review. Prosecco from Italy, also Franciacorta if you want something made in the traditional champagne method, and Cava from Spain. What about you, James? I think pound for pound, the Charles Heidsick non-vintage brute is one of the best buys out there. It offers a bit of that toasty, nutty character that some people dig versus the lean, minerally style. In a similar vein is the Delamont, which is the baby brother to the famed Salon bottling. Aureo is another fave of mine in that vein. And I would echo your Runar pick, Allison. Both the Rosé and the Blanc de Blanc are two of my favorite non-vintage bottlings. You know, the holiday season can take a lot out of you, but I have a working theory to get around that. Champagne has electrolytes. So that statement is not <laughs> FDA approved. I think our tagline for this episode should be brutes, not flutes. Oh, I like that. I got to put that on a T-shirt. Yes, we need some straight talk merchandise. <laughs> if you have questions for us or you just want to drop us a line, you can email us at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. James, do you want to let the Straight Talk fans know what's coming up next? Absolutely. It's time for me to wrap up with our Straight Talk Easter egg. That's a sneak peek that we give you on not only what's coming up in the next issue of the magazine and episode of the podcast, but also a Straight Talk exclusive on an exciting yet-to-be-published wine review. Now, our next issue is the last one of the year, December 31st, celebrating our top 100 wines of the year. The full list has just been released, and you can find it at top100.winespectator.com. And in our next episode, we'll be digging into that with senior editor Bruce Sanderson, our senior senior editor. We may even get a return visit from the winemaker behind our 2022 Wine of the Year, along with a few other surprises. And I know you're going to give us a hot tip. I am. It's going to be another sparkling wine, this time from the United States. Now, we've got Cava, we've got Prosecco, we've got Champagne, of course. The U.S. makes some really good sparkling wines. And in senior editor Tim Fish's report on U.S. sparkling wines, his top value is the Mum Napa Brut Cuvée Prestige Non-Vintage. 90 points, 24 bucks. So you can go big. You can go value. We've got you covered with all of the sparkling wines out there. The Mum Cuvée Prestige Non-Vintage, 90 points and $24. <laughs> thanks, Allison. Thanks, Rob. And until next time, thanks for joining us on Straight Talk. I'm James Molesworth, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs>